We've all seen him, haven't we? Lazarus, uh, perhaps lying on a park bench or sleeping in a doorway or uh, sitting on the street with a disposable coffee cup collecting coins from those who are uh, walking by with a plea for help written on a scrap of cardboard. We've all seen him. And there are things that we could do to help him, but often we don't. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Often, there's a tacit acceptance of a narrative that tells us that the poor are undeserving of our help. And it sounds like this. It's his own fault. He's chosen that life. He should get himself a job. If I give him money, he's going to spend it on alcohol or drugs. Uh, That's the narrative of the undeserving poor. And uh, people will often use that narrative as an excuse to ignore the poor. Uh, Others pass the buck. They say things like, well, his family should help him. Uh, It's the government's responsibility. Uh, There are charities that deal with this sort of thing. And I gave money to charity once, so I've done my bit. Some people think like that. Still others are fearful. They think, well, what if he's suffering with mental health problems? What if he becomes violent? I don't think I want to risk approaching him. Uh, Then there are those who are too busy. If I stop, I'll be late for work. Or I'll miss the start of the film. Or whatever it is. Uh, Finally, there are a lot of people for whom the situation just seems too overwhelming. They think, well, his life is in such a mess. What difference can I possibly make? Uh, People who are homeless will often tell you that the worst thing is the isolation. People walking by, seeming not to notice. Uh, That feeling of being invisible while the world rushes by. Uh, as if their existence isn't even worth acknowledging. A simple good morning is a pretty good place to start. Acknowledge uh, their presence, acknowledge their humanity. But Lazarus isn't just an individual. There are whole communities living in shanty towns all over the world lacking the most basic human needs, food, clean water to drink, Uh, sanitation, medication, education. Uh, Just last week, Sandra told us about her ministry to uh, children in Indonesia who were working on a rubbish dump. Globally, one in ten people are living in extreme poverty. That means they live on less than $1.90 per day. And the uh, global coronavirus pandemic has definitely contributed to that figure. It's pushed it up. but it's largely down to corruption. Uh, People at the top of the food chain getting rich uh, at the expense of the poor. There are places all over the world where rich and poor are literally divided by a fence or a wall, like uh, these two communities in a city in Brazil. You can see the massive contrast, just a wall dividing them. So we understand this situation that Jesus was describing. We've seen Lazarus in person. We've seen him on TV, all those images of poverty from around the world. We know he exists. And this is what Jesus said. 
He said there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Purple linen was incredibly expensive because of the high cost of purple dye. It was the most expensive material you could get. And fine linen probably refers to the man's undergarments, his underwear. Uh, Do you know there's a company called Fine Laundry that has created underwear for men made out of cashmere and embroidered with gold? Uh, A single pair are yours for a mere $1,000. Uh, I won't be rushing out to get any. Um, maybe the rich man wore the ancient equivalent of those. Uh, this is somebody who lived in extravagant luxury. And then Jesus said, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The rich man had gates because he had a large property with a wall around it, and Lazarus was so hungry that he would have gladly eaten any scraps that fell from the rich man's table, but he wasn't even offered those. And the dogs came to lick his sores. Uh, Dogs weren't seen as lovable pets as they are to us. They were detestable animals and dangerous scavengers. Uh, So Lazarus was in a state of absolute degradation, and the rich man completely ignored him, convinced that he deserved his riches and that the poor beggar deserved his poverty. Or maybe he was too self-absorbed even to give it a thought. And immediately, immediately we recognize that this is a gross injustice. So Lazarus uh, died and he was carried to Abraham's side. And and this is what all pious Jews expected, to join uh, Abraham and the patriarchs at the Messianic banquet. So uh, Lazarus is clearly a man who loves God. However, when the rich man died, he went to Hades. That's a Greek word. The Hebrew equivalent is Sheol, and we would say hell. And he went to hell not because he was rich, but because he rejected God and he rejected God's ways. And what we see here is a total reversal of that which was experienced in life. In Jesus' kingdom, uh, the injustices of this world will be put right. We see that uh, throughout the New Testament. We see that throughout the the Bible. But um, a few examples, Uh, Luke 1, you remember Mary's song. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. And Jesus said, didn't he, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And then the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' kingdom represents the opposite of everything we see in the world, because the world is corrupt. Now, you often hear Jesus' kingdom referred to as the upside-down kingdom. But actually, it's not Jesus' kingdom that's upside-down. It's the world. And Jesus, when he comes again, will put things the right way up. So Jesus continues, and this is where it gets a bit disturbing. Uh, Verses 23 to 24. In Hades, where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, 
because I am in agony in this fire. Now, I think the first thing to say is this is not a literal description of hell. Hell is real, and we'll come to that, but this is not a literal description. Jesus talks quite a lot about hell, not in a gloating way, but in order to save people from it. And he uses very evocative language. Jesus leaves us in no doubt that hell is not a good option. But as soon as hell gets mentioned, people still start asking, well, what is hell? What does it look like? What does it mean? And I think there are a number of answers, actually, that we could give from Scripture, which may or may not be accurate. Uh, One view is that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment where the damned are perpetually tortured by fire. That's not my view. Others would say that hell is a way of describing separation from God. Uh, It is the separation from God that is hell, not the, the fiery furnace. Hell is a choice to reject God. And if a person dies still making that choice, they will continue to make that choice forever. And that's uh, in line with C.S. Lewis's thinking. In his book, The Problem of Pain, he wrote, I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, just as the blessed forever submitting to obedience become through all eternity more and more free. C.S. Lewis deals with the subject of hell uh, in his brilliant book, The Great Divorce. And again, it's not meant to be a literal description of hell. It's all figurative, but it helps us to understand how people can remain there forever. Uh, In The Great Divorce, the inhabitants of hell don't even realize where they are. They become so small-minded and pitiful that they just can't imagine anything better. A third view of hell is that it is basically ceasing to exist after the final judgment. Uh, that view is, is known as annihilationism. Uh, in Matthew 10, uh, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus is saying that we should fear God who is in ultimate control of our destiny. But if a person's soul can be destroyed, well, that might imply that the person ceases to exist. I think the Bible allows for a number of perspectives on hell. It's not crystal clear, but it doesn't need to be. It's enough to know that it's something to be avoided at all costs. We can use imagery to describe hell, uh, but I don't think we can quite capture the reality of it. So this rich man has ignored God. There can be no doubt about that. Whether or not he believes in God is immaterial. He has lived his life as if there is no God and therefore no judgment and no justice. We know that he's Jewish because he cries out to his father Abraham. And God has made it very clear how his people are to treat the poor. It was a a central component of the Jewish law, the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of quotes from Leviticus. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner or a stranger. So there's a, um, 
you know, this idea that would have occurred naturally that they're to help the, the foreigner and the stranger and they're to help the, their, their own people in the same way. In other words, they're to help anyone who is poor. And, and again, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Now, I could go on all morning about uh, injunctions from the Old Testament to care for the poor, um, we, but we get the idea from those quotes. Care for the poor was and is super important to God, and it's a, a, a central facet of his law. The rich man had completely ignored that law. He'd completely ignored God because he doesn't have and he doesn't want any kind of relationship with God. So he ends up in hell and he calls up to his father Abraham, which is another good indication that this uh, parable is a parable. It's figurative because they are shouting to each other between uh, hell and heaven. And he says, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And here's the first part of Abraham's reply. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. In other words, hell is just. Hell is just. This is what you chose. You rejected God and his ways, and you demonstrated that perfectly by ignoring the plight of Lazarus. You saw him every day. He was outside your gate. You could have completely transformed your life. Uh, sorry, transformed uh, his life, but you chose to ignore him. Lazarus, on the other hand, loved God. Uh, he had nothing, but he loved the Lord, and now he's with him forever. Hell is just. Abraham goes on to say, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, hell is final, and that finality is here expressed by this chasm that, that cannot be crossed. How we respond to Jesus in this life determines our eternal destiny. So who was Jesus directing this parable at? Who is it who loves their wealth and comfortable positions so much that they reject God and in so doing reject his love, his compassion, and his generosity? Well, actually, it could be anyone. But in this case, it's the Pharisees. They loved their position, their wealth, and comfort. And they had a very strong uh, narrative of the undeserving poor because they believed that anyone uh, who was poor was poor because of their sin. Poverty was a direct result of sin, they thought. They used to look down their noses at anyone who they considered to be the sinful riffraff without lifting a finger to help them. A few weeks ago, uh, we saw that the Pharisees complained that Jesus ate and was friends with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, that, that they certainly wouldn't have had anything to do with such people. And so we see that the rich man represents 
the Pharisees. And those they scorn and sneer at are represented by Lazarus. In the parable, uh, when the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers, uh, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Moses and the prophets is another way of saying the law and the prophets. In other words, they should have read and applied God's word. God has made it clear what he wants from them, but they've rejected God and they've flouted his laws. And then we reach the crux of this conversation. The rich man says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The Pharisees rejected God's ways. They rejected his word. They rejected his law. And so they rejected God. They went on and on about the law, but they didn't keep it. They weren't loving, compassionate, and generous. They were the very opposite. They were judgmental, hard-hearted, and stingy. And when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, they continued to reject him, even after he rose from the dead, with uh, some notable exceptions. The Apostle Paul, we know, was a, a Pharisee. Today, people say, where's the evidence for the truth of Christianity. And when you mention the Bible, they don't want to know. But if they won't even look at it, if they won't even open it, it shows how much they want to avoid God and avoid reaching any conclusion that might challenge their unrepentance. With people whose hearts are hardened against God, meeting Jesus in person might not be enough to soften their hearts and change their minds. This parable is directed to those whose minds are made up. They will not submit their lives to Christ, no matter what evidence they're presented with. Even if someone should be raised from the dead, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, but there's no shortage of people with that mindset today. But the unavoidable conclusion of Jesus' teaching is that rejecting him leads to hell. Hell is real. Jesus spoke about it a lot. There's no avoiding that. Hell is just. The Pharisees rejected God, they rejected Jesus, and that was demonstrated by their total lack of love and compassion. And hell is final. Our response to Jesus in this life is what counts. But most importantly of all, hell is avoidable. We avoid it not by being good, but by putting our hope and our trust in Jesus. Jesus loves you and he wants you to be with him forever. And that invitation is extended to everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the whole reason that Jesus died on a cross, to bring the possibility of salvation. Salvation from sin and death and hell, that's what we need saving from. And it's only Jesus who can save us. In Christ, we're transferred from death to life so that we can live in relationship with God forever. Jesus longs, Jesus longs for every person to repent of their selfishness and their hard-heartedness and to follow him, to walk with him. And when we truly repent, the Holy Spirit gets to work on us 
so that over time we do become more loving, compassionate, and generous. And when we see someone like Lazarus, we actually see an opportunity to tell the story of God's love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that uh, just the whole concept of hell is a difficult one. It's uh, probably, for, for many of us, a thing that we, we struggle with most uh, when it comes to the, the Gospels and what Jesus actually said. But Father, we recognize our hard-heartedness and our unwillingness to see, uh, to see truth. And we pray that um, you'll increase our understanding, but more than that, you'll increase our willingness to follow you and to live lives that are compatible with your kingdom now. Help us to have a great love for people. Help us to look on others with compassion. Help us to be generous. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, people will see our lives and see our church and see that there is a radically uh, different way to live, a way that bucks against the norms of this corrupt world. We pray, Father, that uh, you'll be with us today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.